All right, welcome, Political as Heck. This is a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. Uh, happy Mother's Day, Corey. Happy Mother's Day. This is our Mother's Day edition. It is. And I want to give you the chance. I'm going to say shout out to all the moms. Thank you, mom. Thank you for all the moms. Thank you for all you do. Most significant work on the planet. Often very thankless, long hours, but not easy. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I echo that completely. My, I've lost my own mother, but my wife is the mother of my four children. And I have a daughter-in-law that's the mother of my two grandchildren. So I was able to spend all day with them today. So that's nice. Oh, that's great. Perfect. All right. So let's take up the topic of the week. That is the SCOTUS abortion decision leak. So uh, a draft opinion was leaked from February. This was drafted by uh, Justice Samuel Alito. It actually seems like there was probably two leaks, one to the Wall Street Journal and then one of the actual opinion. But th- what it says is essentially in Alito's draft, he says the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, which is, there is no such right implicitly protected either, he says, which is absolutely Rel- accurate. If you read the Constitution, 100 <laughs> percent. So let's get into the details of that. But let me read what he said. So he says Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak. And the decision has had damaging consequences. It's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. And it looks like Alito is joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, where Chief Justice Roberts looks like he he's trying he is in a, a place where he's trying to get folks to come to his side for a middle way decision. This is actually the decision I thought they would make. So I'm a little surprised that they would strike down the entire Roe v. Wade. It's a complete repudiation of Roe and Casey. Most people don't realize that Casey actually already partially overruled Roe. That was back in the early 90s. Yeah. So the original case was Griswold v. Connecticut, and that created a right to privacy. The justices said that they could, even though the Constitution says nothing about privacy, they could find that right to privacy in the penumbras meaning the shadows of the words. And Roe was a later decision, found a right to abortion in that same privacy penumbras due to the 14th Amendment due process. And in Roe, the justices created that trimester framework where in the first trimester, it was basically abortion on demand. Second trimester, you'd have to have more reasons. And third trimester, it could be banned. And as you said, like in in Casey, that that was altered and replaced by undue burden. Essentially, states could pass laws, but not any law that created an undue burden. Yeah. But this is going to eliminate all that. Yeah, it it will. And um, not only does the word um, abortion not appear in the Constitution, the word privacy does not appear in the Constitution. Um, The word first trimester, second trimester, third (laughs) trimester, those words do not appear in the Constitution. The legal basis of Roe has always been um, very, very, very shaky. However, it, 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 it's a decision that's been at least partially in effect for 49 years. And so you do have the principle of precedent and stare decisis and all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in Utah, we're one of the 14 or 15 states with a trigger law. So as soon as, um, as, soon as Roe, if this decision becomes public, and by the way, I, 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 I'm still holding out hope Corey, that Justice Roberts were signed on to this majority opinion. Uh, I think the more interesting question is um, what happens, uh, you know, 
what happens if a zealot uh, goes and shoots Clarence Thomas or something like that? Th 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 this is a very dangerous um, um, predicament that that this leak has put our Supreme Court in because this is a draft opinion. It's not a final opinion. And there are enough zealots and enough um, mentally unstable people in this country that one of, one of them might feel like they can do something to stop this from going into law. And if Roberts is aligned with the three liberal judges and one of the five in the majority were to die, um, uh, th then, then this would not become law. And, and that's why I think um, well, to, to that point, real quick, Justice Alito, it's been reported, Justice Alito has already, he and his family have already been moved to an undisclosed location to protect their safety. Yeah, Probably I think the same thing is going to happen with Kavanaugh. I, yeah. And, um, and what's just as a side note, what's amazing to me is Jen Psaki um, was asked this week as the spokesman for Biden, if the White House had any comment on, on that. And she um, refused. The White House has not condemned this um, unprecedented leak. Um, now, Ro the, the decision in Roe um, was leaked, but not, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, the way the justices were going to vote in Roe in 1973 was leaked, um, uh, but, but not the actual verbiage of the decision. This, the, the full draft of a decision being leaked like this has never, ever happened before in the history of our country. Yeah. So there's a couple issues at play here too, actually a few. We have the leak, which we should talk about a little more like uh, you just described. But then also the law itself, the actual decision is what Alito is taking aim at, is, is calling egregiously wrong. So you have, the, yeah, you have the legal question of whether it's in the Constitution. Then you have this separate question of what's the right public policy? Those are actually two separate things. And, and, and the left and the Democrats are trying to smash those together and say, if uh, if Roe is overturned, there's going to be you know women dying in the streets. It's just not true. So the the, the decision itself is one of the first that I learned in law school, and I, to be honest with you, I I couldn't believe it. It's just that bad. The reasoning is is just it's so poorly reasoned. It's essentially like creating this right out of whole cloth out of nowhere, and it's not in the Constitution. I personally couldn't agree more with Alito that it was egregiously wrong, suspect uh, reasoning, and the decision has had tremendously damaging consequences. The other part, though, the question of what's the right public policy, well, now, instead of the Supreme Court deciding it for everyone, this will be now up to each individual state to make decisions. And that's how the Constitution is actually written, where you have the states and the localities making these types of decisions rather than the national government. So there will be, there will be differences. And so you, you, you just uh, shared with us that we, that Utah has a trigger law, that trigger law, as far as I understand it, you could, uh, you could have abortions for uh, in the case of the health of the mother is a jeopardy or rape or incest, or if the child has uh, recognizable, you know, brain damage or is brain dead and that kind of thing. And I, and I fully suspect that in California and New York, you'll probably have abortion on demand up until the last minute. And in fact, Jen Psaki was asked this week whether President Biden supported any limitations, any limitations on abortion. She said no. And the follow-up question was, do you, does he support any limitations up until birth? And she said no. So this is very different. When you, when you try to smash these two issues together and say, well, if the 
if the Supreme Court doesn't guarantee it, then there's going to be no abortions. Well, I think what you're going to see is there's not going to be a whole lot of states who are going to buy into this idea that President Biden apparently does, that you can have late-term, third-term abortions at 35 weeks, which is just so gruesome and horrifying. So here, here in Utah, we will have a, a law go into effect, and, and uh, these, these edge cases, which you know amount to like a half a percent, really, a one, one to two percent at most, of the cases, um, you know, they'll still be able to have an abortion if they need to. Yeah. And so I think um, what I've seen, Corey, from the sidelines, well, um, uh, sort of speak in the last three, three years expressly, uh, expressly, I think both the extremes of both parties, both major parties have gotten more extreme. So you've got, you know, Democrats, some Democrats, not all, some liberals and progressive pushing for basically abortion on demand, even in the third trimester, which I think most Americans find would agree with you that that's inappropriate and there, there should be some regulations there. But then you also have uh, some people on the far right who are pushing to eliminate the loopholes for incest and rape and even the health of the mother. And we even had a, a resolution at the, you know, that would have um, redefined the platform position for the Utah Republican Party that did not get debated at the state convention, but I fully expect you'll see a bill in the legislature next year that would try to eliminate some of those loopholes uh, for rape and incest and things like that, which, you know, will be interesting to watch. And so I, I see the left moving further left on abortion and the right moving, you know, some of the far right elements moving further to the right saying we should have no exceptions, um, which, which is, you know, will be an interesting debate to have. Yeah, and it's a debate that we should have, and I think I, you know, I welcome it. Welcome that debate. We should talk through it because I, I mean, I don't think that even most Utahns are in a place where they would say that that um, some of these exceptions are not don't make sense. I think you know, even that's basically the church's position. Is um, it, it is the church's position, and I, I think that that you know, the church is a stakeholder. You know, carries some weight, of course. Um, a lot of my constituents are, are, are members of the church, but I mean, that, that's not the end of the discussion, but I, I, I'll tell you right now, I don't think um, my guess right now is you won't see those exceptions go away in Utah. And, and I'm, I'm not prepared to, to vote right now to, to end mm -hmm. any of those exceptions. So that, that, that will be a debate I, I expect we'll have. Yeah. Not, I won't be the one running the bill though. <laughs> I don't know who will, <laughs> we'll but I could, probably, will. I could guess well, within five legislators who will run it. So. Uh, it's worth mm -hmm. noting that um, Governor Cox and Senator Romney put out strong statements in support of the decision, basically saying, don't know if this decision will hold, but if it does, we support it. And so, you know, I, I applaud them for that. Uh, Senator Lee, the same, although, you know, it, you know, he spent more time focused on the breach of trust with, uh, with the leak. But one thing I wanted to, uh, to discuss a little, uh, Becky Edwards and Evan McMullen put out these well, I would, I would describe as mealy mouth word salads to avoid taking a position. Either one of them, you could read through it. And I read them both multiple times <laughs> to try to, to try to discern like what, it, where, where exactly they are. And it, you can't discern it. I mean, it was, it was well-written enough that, uh, that you have no idea where Becky Edwards stands or Evan McMullen on these issues. On, on well, the issue. well, they're, they're both clearly pro-life, which I think is going to leave some Democrats scratching their head because Although we can parse terminology, the Utah Democrats essentially voted to, to support Evan McMullen. 
And so they, they're, they're basically backing a pro-life candidate. Um, and he may be a little wishy-washy in his verbiage, but he's not pro-choice. Well, so, you know, he has that history of, of calling on President Trump to, to overturn Roe and so forth. But I don't know, his statement is really interesting because he, he went to great lengths to, I don't think it's a given that he's pro-life. I don't think it's a given that she's pro-life, frankly. I think they, uh, they may, be, may be in a position, I mean, they've left plenty of room to take like that Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania position, which is essentially, I'm pro-life myself, but I don't think the government should, uh, you know, should, should have any restrictions on abortion. Well, I mean, the difference between Evan McMullen and Becky Edwards is Becky voted in the legislature for 10 years, and I think she has voted in, um, voted in favor of probably at least eight pro-life abortion bills in the Utah legislature. So I don't think it's a big mystery for her, but I think both of them are in a position where they're, they're trying not to alienate anybody who might otherwise be inclined to vote for them. So, Yeah, so that's interesting. Okay, so in the, in the U.S. Senate this, this week, Senator Schumer is going to bring up to vote a basically abortion on demand bill. What's really interesting here is Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, who are moderate Republicans who take a lot of flack from Republicans, but they put together a bill that essentially tracks where the real polling is on this. I mean, the left will say that 70% of Americans support abortion and there's some truth to that, but well, they say they support Roe is what they usually say. Yeah, but support Roe. Yeah. So, but when you, when you really look into, uh, open the, uh, lift the lid on that and look at uh, more specific questions. I mean, basically where the majority of Americans are is similar to the, the, the Roe framework in that the first trimester, a lot of Americans are in favor of some forms of abortion. And then as you reach closer and closer to viability, there's less and less. Anyway, that's the, that's the bill that uh, Collins and Murkowski essentially drafted. And you'd think that the Democrats would be on board with that, but Schumer said, no, um, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to compromise on something like this. So they're going to go full abortion on demand. So let's be clear. Schumer is doing this to be vindictive and punitive. He's trying to do this to hurt the, anyone who votes against this, what I'm going to call an extremist uh, liberal position. He knows he doesn't have the votes to pass it. So this is really an exercise in futility. It's, it's a hundred percent political. Um, and, I think that this is going to backfire because I think that instead of hurting um, the politicians who vote against it, I, I think um, it'll actually help them because like you said, the Democrats. So first of all, before six days ago, many Americans believed if Roe was overturned, that that meant that abortion would become illegal in all 50 states. Um, they didn't understand that prior to Roe, 20 states, including California, and New York, allowed abortion. And 30 states, including Utah and Arizona, did not allow abortion. Um, and so if Roe and Casey are, in fact, overturned in June, it just puts it back into the states. And one of the most ironic and really idiotic criticisms I've heard of this draft decision, decision is that it's anti-democratic. So let, let's think about this for a second. Prior to Roe, people could vote for or against their state legislators based on their position on abortion. After Roe, uh, Roe took that away from, from, from everyone and said this was a constitutional right. Now, if Roe is overturned with Casey, then people can vote again for or against state legislators based on their position on abortion, either side. So how, so, so it is, so, so Roe is actually anti-democratic because that took the vote away from the people 
uh, repealing and revoking and overturning Roe and Casey is actually democratic because it would restore those, you know, those, those state legislatures with that authority. So people have these terms that they throw out, and I don't think that they actually understand what they mean. I mean, basically, anti-democratic is just something they call out. Just it's it's, it's another like. epithet like racist, yeah. you know, yeah. or fascist. Or unconstitutional. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to another topic. So uh, Representative Steve Handy in your neck of the woods, he lost his race to uh, a newcomer, Trevor Lee, uh, at the convention. So Trevor Lee will be the, the candidate because um, Representative Handy didn't collect signatures. We've talked about this before. Well, sometime this week, Trevor Lee was on a podcast and he uh, referred to transgender people as trannies, which is, uh, uh, now I understand is an epithet. I'd never heard of that before, except to refer to like a car transmission. So that was a new one on me, but I understand that it's, uh, that it's uh, something of a derogatory term. So representative Handy called it out as disappointing and said he was thinking about a writing campaign that he'd received a lot of calls. And so Salt Lake Tribune and the, you know, the, those folks who looking to pounce, uh, I really went after Trevor Lee and, and he, uh, released a statement saying that he didn't know the word was a slur, whether he did or he didn't, he said he promised to remove it from his vocabulary. Certainly like, you know, put downs and epithets should have no place in our discourse. And I, I listened to the podcast. You probably did too. He got pretty jocular, probably not things that I would say, you know? And so, you know, it probably is a good warning to him to uh, be a little bit more cautious or at least a little bit more circumspect with the way he, that he talks. But in any event, um, Representative Handy also went on KSL radio twice to characterize Lee. Uh, those, you know, saying this statements were disappoint, disappointing and basically characterized him. He said he was ra- sounded racist and had his smacks of white nationalism. So, and, and Handy's apologized for saying that, I, I want to point out. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. But so... Uh, I know you have real insight on this, so I'll just finish like the explanation. The Davis County Republican Party uh, released a statement saying we the party unequivocally condemns the transphobic comments made recently by by candidate Trevor Lee. And then about a a couple of days later, there was a statement from a handful of of uh, names that we'd recognize, including Representative Kira Birkeland and Carrie Ann Lisenby, Olivia Dawn from the party. Uh, rebuking the Davis County GOP. I know you've been involved with this. What's uh, what are your thoughts about the whole thing? Well, I, I think that I think that the Davis GOP um, felt like uh, you know there are very there are, there are different um, feelings and interpretations of what the role of the party is. I think that Danielle Harding, who's the chair of the Davis GOP, does an excellent job, and I think that you know she tries very hard to stay neutral, but. At the same time, you know, if, if a Democrat um, candidate had made a, a slur against um, Jews or Muslims or even Mormons, I think, Corey, both of us would expect the party to say, hey, we don't stand behind that. Um, and, and so I'm just trying to put the shoe on the other foot. And so I, I, I can understand both sides of this. On, on one hand, you know, some people are saying, well, now the, the party's, you know, basically criticizing its candidate, which, which it was. On the other hand, I think that the the party, you know, I don't think the party has to blindly stand by and cheerlead for someone who says something inappropriate. And Trevor Lee apologized 
essentially for saying it, but then he kind of said, well, here's some other terms that people use that I find offensive, um, you know, which I think detracted from his apology. But I, I take him at face value when he said, like you said, that he didn't realize that that was a slur or that that was offensive. Um, I, I can tell you that um, uh, this will be interesting. I, I think Steve Handy will launch a write-in campaign. I think it's uh, it's an uphill battle for him. But let me tell you, um, historically, write-ins have always failed in Utah. But let me tell you why he might have a chance. There's four reasons. Number one, the legislature did away with straight ticket voting. W- why does that matter? Well, if if this election had been four years ago, about 25%, maybe 30% of the voters in Davis County would have just punched all the Republican candidates and been done. You can't do that anymore. And so you have to go through. Number two, there is no Democrat in this race. And so mm-hmm. if there was a Democrat like Kale Weston against, um, uh, against Evan McMullen, of course, that would take votes away from a write-in or an independent candidate, but there is no Democrat. In fact, I've heard that the House Democrats in the Utah legislature, they plan on spending, sending a postcard to the voters in that district asking Democrats to, to write in Steve Handy. Number three, there is a Libertarian candidate um, whose name will be, appear on the ballot. So the Libertarian candidate will draw, you know, whatever votes they get, you, you have to assume they would have gone to Trevor Lee as the Republican candidate. So, I mean, that's going to be one or two or three or four or five percent is all. It might be higher because there's no Democrat. Um, but number four, Steve Haney has been elected six times um, in that district to the to the state house. And he was on the city council and narrowly lost for mayor about 12, uh, 14 years ago. So and he's uh, he's been a state president um, uh, in the LDS church in that community. So he's got a fairly good name recognition. Trevor Lee moved into that district less than a year ago and doesn't have any name recognition except for what's been generated from some of this negative publicity. And so while I think an, a writing campaign is always a steep uphill battle, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put this one out of um, distance. It, it'll matter how much Steve Handy can raise and no matter how many volunteers he can get to go out and knock doors for him. Uh, but I would say like Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, he has a chance. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that will be interesting, but I would say for the Davis County GOP, I totally understand what you mean that they, you know, they have a right to put out a, put, put, put their thoughts out there and to short circuit it. And if the shoe was on the other foot, but you know, like I do actually do this for my work all the time, yeah. public policy statements and, and putting stuff out there. And I just think that they could have admonished him privately and then said publicly that it's been handled. They could have done a hundred other things. I mean, to me, like putting out that sharp statement like that, would be a last resort, not like the first thing that you go to. Well, so. and, and I think the timing is important because this story broke on the Tribune's website on Friday afternoon. Uh, the Davis County Republican Party waited a full 24 hours uh, or close to 24 hours before they put out their statement. And then it was only after their statement came out that Trevor Lee released his own statement. Now, he'll tell you that he was working on that before. Um, and he's also complained um, loudly that the county party didn't um, contact him. But let me just say that that door swings both ways. He didn't contact the party either. So there, there was 24 hours there where either side, and, and, and I think, you know, you could point your fingers either way. Um, but I mean, he certainly could have called the party and said, hey, you know, um, will you help me draft the statement or uh, what are we going to do about this? But th- th- there, I, I think there is um, a, a little bit of a, a rift there 
um, uh, you know, between him and, uh, and the, the leaders of the, the, the current leaders of the party. And I think it's worth mentioning that the vice chair of the um, uh, Davis Republican Party is LGBT himself. So um, just to give you a little bit of further insight. Mm, I see. So maybe that was, well, um, so the last thought I have on this is, uh, you, you know, Steve Handy, obviously I don't, but I, I do think it, you know, the whole thing is, this whole episode is a little disappointing, I think from his part too, because to use the accusatory language of the leftist inquisition saying racist and white nationalist, which is just baloney. I mean, yeah, I, I, that is really deeply disappointing. And, uh, and I think hurts his credibility, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, I think he went too far. And I was, um, I, I think he probably got caught up in that. I think it was live on KSL when he did that. And I think he, as soon as he um, had a chance, he, he retracted that and apologized. I, I, I think he would agree with you that 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 wasn't his best move. So, you know, and these things are very personal. I, you know, if, if you've never uh, filed for office and it's very, um, it's a very vulnerable time in your life. It's um, a lot of people are taking shots at you. Um, you find out who your real friends are. People that you thought your friend were friends are stabbing you in the back. And so um, I, I don't agree with what he said, um, but um, you know, I, both of them have said things I think were inappropriate and they both apologize. So, yeah. Um, and I think that's appropriate. The apologies are appropriate. All right, good. Two, two huge top meaty topics. So we only got to get to do two this week, but uh, next week we'll have more. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Corey. We'll see you next week. Catch you next Bye-bye. time.